when you talk to people. Simple things like the stuff your mom says. This one has two parts. The first one is a warning to rich oppressors. Some of your Bibles actually will have that, that kind of title on there. And then the second one is patience and suffering, okay? And you're like, gosh, what do these two things have to do with each other? The, the point is they may not necessarily have to have anything to do with each other. You could, we could have talked about these individually, and that would have been fine. But since we broke it down this way, I saw a connective thing that what we want to come out from this, I titled this Patience Until the Lord's Coming, is this understanding of our faith in God versus our faith in ourselves. I think that's kind of a theme between these two things. But they both hit very hard in their own way. But there is a thread running between them of do you trust your circumstances? Do you trust your stuff? Do you trust yourself in a way? Or do you trust God? Is this a God-centered life you're living or a self-centered life that you're living? And it's two different versions of that, okay? Obviously implying the God-centered life is the one you want to be doing, okay? So he's calling us out in some pretty... Uh, um, pretty deep ways. So I'm going to read through again some of these chunks and then add some other scriptures in here. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Whoa. Um, just a little bit in the imagery like I was talking about. Clo specifically talking about clothing here. Clothing was one of the biggest status symbols in their culture. It might still be for us, but, I mean, we've lost a little bit of that. Or it's just been morphed. Now it's like Yeezy clothes or something. But the point... <laughs> well, not that. The, the shoes. Yes. See? Sh yes. See? Y'all were like, no, but yeah. That was kind of... I'm just kidding. Anyway, yeah, so the comments on the clothes was specifically commenting about kind of flaunting your wealth. You know what I mean? And talking about gold and silver corroding, gold doesn't even corrode. He was using this as an imagery kind of to say not only do you flaunt your wealth, you have so much stuff and wealth that you can't even use it all, and it's like rotting away. That's the point he's trying to make. And this is where I say, like, we try to wiggle ourselves out. And it's like, well, good thing I'm not rich because that would bother me if God was talking to me about that. And, 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 and again, I think this is getting at a deeper root. Like, you see, this is the, you know, the famous, famous Bible verses time. First Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's kind of the core of this one is trusting in wealth. Versus trusting in God, you know, and that's a version of what I was saying, self-trust, you know, and it's 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 there. It's in there. It's in everything we do as a society. It's been in human. It's been in a human problem since back. I mean, forever, you know, I mean, a lot of us felt it when there was like, I mean, we shouldn't be doing like the lottery anyway. You know, I mean, we, we could talk about this another time. And this is not like a but like the Bible and gambling and stuff like that. But the point is, when you hear like, gosh, two point four billion dollars or whatever that was, you know, like I could surely use that, you know. And we all have this feeling. We could act like we don't, like, oh, I didn't ever once think that when I heard about them giving out $2.4 billion, you know. Um, but the truth is, if we really have faith in God, like, if, he, if he'd be like, if you need that, I can give it to you. 
we don't really we don't really need it. As I mean, but we kind of live in this constant, you know, this is the grain of society here, you know, and we might be in a in a tough piece of the pie on this one, all right guys? Example is this. The first line says Now listen, you rich people. Okay, so the question is, am I rich? Is he talking to me? Um, if you live off of $25,000 a year, I'm not talking about adjusted gross income. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the amount of funding that goes towards your life. If you live off $25,000 a year, you're in the richest 10% of people in the world. And if you live off $34,000 a year, you're in the richest 1% of people in the world. Which, y'all remember that whole Occupy Wall Street thing? That seems like so, that was all about 1%. That's probably just about every single person in this room. Now, if you're like, where did you get this crazy statistic? It came out of this book. Um, I've heard it other places. And I'm going to talk more about this book in a couple weeks. And look, I'm not here just to kind of blow us all up over and over again. The reason this is in here, remember, this is Jesus' brother putting Jesus' teachings in some new context is this love of money being the root of all kinds of evil tends to be one of the things that messes people up a lot. And so it's really important, and if you've done things like Dave Ramsey or one of those crown groups or whatever, you, you realize quite how many Bible verses there are that discuss money. And it's weird, they actually, there's more of them than there are verses about love, which is strange. Let me just read a couple of these here. This book, in this book he's talking about, that one of the chapters is about how this love of money really messes us up, both spiritually and even um, uh, just, all, or just everything. So let me read a couple of these Bible verses he has in here just because they're a good, it's a good little collection. All right, I'm not going to reference all of these. Uh, watch out, be all, all be against all kinds of, watch out, be on guard, be against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. This is Jesus teaching stuff. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Do, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or, any, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, or the body more than clothes? Seek first God's kingdom. Don't, don't, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word. Y'all recognize that? Choke the word thing? Remember that other prayer we pray about the offering? Choke the word. This is where it's from. And uh, I have it in I think I had a reference in here. Mark. Let me see if I can go down and find it just so you have that. Yeah, Mark 4, 14 through 20. Um, which is all about sowing seed. I'm going to read that at the end. The words of this light, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful, the seeds that fall in the thorns. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Are you rich? Okay. Again, I'm not trying to, like, beat up everybody. I'm just trying to tell you what's in the Bible here, you know. It's in your Bible, too. And I'm going to, so, there's more, but we don't need, you get the point. The love and the desire and the, the grip of our need for wealth and luxury things 
can destroy us faster than just than a lot of other things. We don't need to get in like a priority. It's like, well, this is actually where it doesn't matter. It's a very destructive force and it's working its way through our society. And we happen to be on like the the beneficial side of these things. So the question I was like, the first question is like, is, are we rich? Yes, we are rich. So this is definitely talking to us. But um, there's kind of a second part of this. Uh, and it starts in verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. And in this time, like, you know, m many people did work on other people's farms. And, you know, and there was actually, this is literally, uh, um, literally referencing some Old Testament laws that God was, when he was giving the Israelites, like, here's how I want you to live, like Leviticus 19.13. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Or Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So, James' main warning in all of this is against the rich being overly self-focused while not caring about other people's suffering, okay? That's the framework we're dealing with here. And not saying that having things is bad, okay? Even one of the things I read in here is like, why worry about clothes and stuff? I mean, God can deal with it. He can give you that. Like I told you before, he could give you $2.4 billion if you needed it. That's kind of, that's what living, like trusting God is about. He's like, you, if you don't have it, you, you don't need it. So we should stop acting like we do, you know, <laughs> and we can joke. I mean, I joke all the time, about, you know, well, I was rich, you know, but like, so we don't need to be like, gosh, dude, be serious all the time. You don't have to be that way. But the point is, we do need to live that way. Okay. So the first question was, are we rich? The answer is yes. Are we oppressors? And the answer I would say to this is directly no, but indirectly yes. And that's why I think this is a warning to us. Because, and you'll find out even if you read this book or other books like this, and again, I'm going to explain more about what this book is. This book is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and it's, we're going to go through this at Advent partially. Um, it is about dealing with how, how our lives were all, like, completely overly anxious and worn out all the time, and that's not how people are designed to live by God. It's not a Christian life. And this guy went on a journey, he's a pastor, to eliminate that, and, and he figured out some spiritual practices that went into that, but he also started confronting himself in some of these areas. And when I say, when you go, you just called me indirectly an oppressor, what in the world are you talking about? You need to go back to that. That's, that's what I'm talking about here, is that our, very few of us are hiring day laborers and not paying them. I mean, if you are, you are straight up what he's talking about. Like, if you hire people and you don't pay them, this is, that's literally what this is about. The problem we have, you and me, every single one of us, and I'm including my, I'm not going, you guys need to change your lives and be like me. I don't have an answer to this, okay? The whole system we live in is built on something that looks kind of like that. You know, all these clothes that we're buying were made by people. Did you just turn the lights off? Okay. It's like, whoa. 
Don't strike me down, God. No, all these clothes we wear are made by people. They're not made in America anymore where you had to pay people. You know what I mean? He covers some of this in his book. And they're made in countries where maybe you can buy people off or whatever, you know. And they're made by kids and stuff. They work seven days a week. Some of them don't get paid. And then they bring it over here and sell it to us, and we buy it all. And we keep buying it. And the thing that I see, the similarity is that we all have closets full of stuff. And we all have storage units full of stuff. And I'm not, I'm not saying that if you have a storage unit, you're bad. I'm not saying that, okay? You have to hear the principle behind this. Our consumption level is so big that these companies keep making this stuff and exploiting these people that are at the bottom, and we get it all. We don't even need it all, that we have to pay money to store it somewhere. Meanwhile, there's these people that aren't able to live and buy food, and they're making it all for us. I'm just telling you, based on this scripture, God cares about that. And we as his people should also care about it. I am not telling you what you need to do, because I actually don't know. I'm using an iPad while I'm talking. I don't know how to fix this. But I do think that, like we've been saying about all these other things in James, I don't think we should change now, is... If you remember, all these other really hard lessons, I wasn't like, let's go out and change the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like, no, let's start small. So my advice about this would be to recognize that a lot of our culture and society is wasteful. It is, it is exploiting people. And that we should, that God cares about that. So we should care about that. And we should not try to live lives of, as it says here, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. We should not objectify those things as things to be attained. Like, that's, that's the goal. Luxury and self-indulgence. And that kind of is the goal in our society. You know what I mean? It's the goal in all... I mean, it was the goal in their society. I mean, it's not like, since we're American, we're bad. I'm not saying that. You, are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Everybody's kind of staring at me. I'm like, <laughs> I think I lost everyone. The point isn't that we're bad. The point isn't that our country is bad. The point isn't that anything is that there's a pyramid set up, just like in Egypt, and we happen to be at that top. And there's people that aren't at the top. And there's like a billion and a half of them. And God cares about that. They're not any worse than us. They're not any lesser than us. God cares about them just as much. Frankly, you might care in a sense more if you follow what I mean by that because they're crying out, you know, not as a one-to-one. You get what I mean. So um, I'm just saying we should care about this as well. And we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't seek to live self-indulgent lives that are full of luxury. We should be seeking the opposite, somehow. So the real solutions, I think we should start thinking small in our own lives, make some changes, like he suggests in this book. One is just buy less stuff, but, you know, we'll get there. But this question I saw somebody else wrote, I didn't write this, I thought this is a good way to sum it up, is does how I live help get people out of poverty or keep them in it? Just keep asking yourself that question all the time, and it will start to steer our behaviors. You know what I mean? Because the world is not going to tell us to stop being self-indulgent. I mean, frankly, the, the whole advertising industry is designed around telling us to be that. <laughs> and so we are going to have to, in a countercultural sort of way, resist it, at least within my life or within Byron's life. In Byron's household, you see what I'm saying? Like, we don't have control of it. I can't make Apple or Amazon do anything, and, you know, and we use all that stuff. My point is, in my life, I can do this much, and I'm going to do the amount I can. If we all do that, something would change, you know. 
this is not an argument for any sort of specific economic philosophy or something like that, okay? It's just saying that God cares when people are exploited. And in the truth, we do too, all right? We all know that. And I do think that the, the whole deeper point of this, these chunks of Scripture is, like, where is our trust? You know, what are, what are we trusting? Are we trusting in, if I could just have enough of this stuff, whatever it is, I mean, the big lie that we all know is if I could just have this, I'll be happy. And we all know and we tell our kids it doesn't really work. And then we still live that way. And it's this kind of silly thing we all do. You know, like, that's not how the world works. You won't be, you know, and then we go, well, if I could just have this new guitar, like Justin and I, you know, just one more guitar, that would be, you know, then I would have all the things I need. And immediately you're, you're not, you know, so it's not, it's just a lie. It doesn't work. And in order for us to keep doing it, it's, it's, it's hurting other people. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. She's not saying anything goes. And you want to know an interesting thing? This is another thing that's in this book. This is a rabbit trail. Sorry to break away from the Bible for a rabbit trail. But um, I'd seen this statistic somewhere else as well. They said, more money makes you happier. This is the thing we were just talking Like We all know that's not true. But I'm not talking about Christian people. I'm just talking about people that study. Uh, so they weren't, they, the reason I bring up not Christian is not go, since this is coming from non-Christian people, that makes it trustworthy. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this is coming from non-Christian people, which means they had no biblical agenda behind. There was nothing. They were just observing facts. Okay? They came to this realization that for at least Americans, there is, a peri- there is a point where, like, more money makes you happy. And they know the number because they, they figured it out from researching. And, and it's right at $75,000 a year. Like, any more money than that has no correlation to happiness. And actually has a, it goes down, really, because it starts to... But they said what they realized was that amount of money in the United States gives you enough money to have almost identically what it is, food and clothes, like, enough to live. Like, we just prayed our daily bread. He's like, you have enough to live and not be worried about this one thing is going to ruin everything. That type of anxiety is what I would call unhappiness, right? Once you have enough to get across that line, there's absolutely zero correlation between happiness and more money. And these are like, again, these aren't people trying to teach the ways of Jesus. They're just observing this. They just go, hey, you know what? We found this out, you know? I think it actually proves what Jesus says is true, because if you also notice the way Jesus teaches about these things he's saying, you can't serve both God and money. He didn't say you shouldn't. He said you can't. You see what I'm saying? There's a big difference between those two. One's all guilt. You shouldn't serve God and money. When he's like, no, you actually just kind of, you can't. You will serve, you can't. It's not possible. He presents them more like laws, like we would say E equals MC squared or things like that. You know, equal and opposite reaction. You know, he's not saying that's how it should work. He's like, no, that is how it works. Jesus is telling us the answer. You know, you can't serve both God and money. So stop. <laughs> you know, But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation in a, in a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of e- evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
Now that is not a guilt-laden statement, that whole thing. That is 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. He is not saying, you know, money doesn't matter. He's not saying you shouldn't care about money. He's not saying you're bad if you have money. He's just saying that this desire that's gripping your heart, um, that's what's destructive. And it's like they've pierced themselves with many griefs. I don't even think I would have, well, I wouldn't have thought to have put it that way, but it's like, gosh, it's like a self-inflicted wound here, you know? Anyway, I think I've made this point, so we'll move on. I don't want <laughs> this one's been messing with me this week because I am absolutely guilty of everything we just read, you know, and I don't know exactly what to do about it other than repent and say, God, I'm sorry for not caring, you know, but I need your guidance about what we can do about it. But then it moves into the second part, which if you have in your Bible, it might say something like patience and perseverance or suffering. It says this, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming, which is what I use as a title. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains, which were good things. This is a desert climate, you know. Rain is not sad. It's not Charlie Brown rain. This is, this is rain so, oh, good, the crops will grow and we won't starve. That's a good thing. You're patiently waiting for the good thing, okay? You too, you too be patient. This is, this is him talking to us now. You too, you guys, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. I'll read that again. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The word grumble is funny to me um, just because I think it's automatopoeic in a way. You know, like this kind of thing. Um, that you, you understand what that means. Don't grumble or you'll be judged. And the judge is standing at the door, not far off. He can hear. You know, sometimes we hear our daughters having a disagreement. I will use safe language. And I can hear them <laughs> standing at the door. We're like, we heard everything you said. You can't tell us something else. My kids are awesome, though. So I'm getting a glare. I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll stop. Everybody else, they know it's the same thing. So. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. So that's, this is the whole thing. Perseverance when things don't seem to be going your way and being patient for the growth like a, like a farmer does. We've got the seed in the ground. It's going to come, you know. But we are dependent on things we can't control, like the rain, you see. They're in the same exact boat. And he's saying the, the attitude is perseverance. And part of that perseverance is breaking free from the first half of this whole thing. You know, where if I don't have this thing, now the whole world is. It's like, no, it's not true. This content in all things, you know what I mean? As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance. Now, that's y'all know the whole story of Job and all the things that happened to him. They were horrible and wrong, and he didn't deserve any of them. But he finally sticks with God all the way through to the end. And you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. And here's the truth. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. All of the suffering of all of the world, all the people I was just talking about, that 1.5 billion people and stuff, God cares about that, and He's full of compassion and mercy. And He cares about our suffering as well. He cares about every time somebody mistreats us, He cares about all of it. And He's the only one, like, we have no capacity for these kinds of things. 
because we we have only like I can only care about a few people suffering, and then it's like whoa, like too much. You're the same way. You can care about a handful of people, but then God cares about all of it for all time, and doesn't forget any of it either. He's full of compassion and mercy. And then it ends up this, all, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear not by heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. This is just kind of ending out this whole thing about, like, just live honestly before the Lord. And then the second part is also reminding us that judgment matters, and that judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming, and God's judgment means not just on us personally, but on the whole system, the whole thing. And part of it is that we're trusting him to fix it. Like, we do realize we can't fix the world. Jesus is fixing the world. And we can say, God, this is unjust. This thing is unjust. And if we can take actions to work against things in any, any place, you know, if you're in your school and there's a bunch of kids picking on one kid, sometimes there's things you can do about that. And you can do those things and you do them, you know. And sometimes you just hear about something that's all the way across the world and you have nothing to do with it. But you can say, God, that's unjust, and you're going to end that one day, and I know that, and that's part of the hope that we have, that injustice will end. But there's also the warning that he's judging it, that he's going to say, that's wrong, <laughs> and y'all that are doing it is wrong. So again, where is our trust? Is our trust, when we're in the middle of a difficult thing, when we're waiting, when we're the farmer, we've done all this stuff, we put the seed in the ground, and it's not raining are we starting to take matters into our own hands to make it happen? Or are we, as the story is suggesting, waiting patiently for God to do his part? This is extremely difficult for, for me. I mean, maybe y'all are like, no, this is great. You can come up here and share on this part. For me, it's very hard to trust. It's like, okay, you know, and God's timing is not the same as mine. Um, but I do think it's interesting in this that they reference the fall and spring rains, which were uh, ecologically when these things happened. They were seasonal. But they're also seasonal. So they're reliable in a way. You see what I'm saying? You know, because you have fall and spring every year. That doesn't mean every year you got the same amount of rain. But if it's June, if John was the farmer and John was like, I planted all this stuff and it's not raining, and I'm like, it's June. Like, Talk to me in September or, August or October if it's not raining then, then maybe we'll worry. But right now it seems like you're a little off timing. You know what I mean? God is into timing, and he has timing. I want to close now. So, Caleb, if you could come up. and uh, The main thing is, that, like I said, who are we trusting? Are we living a self-centered life or a God-centered life? And the other stuff, even like the amount of stuff and money we have is kind of window dressing if you get that part right. You know, it's a danger. It's something we should all be really concerned about because it's talked about so much as a danger, you know. But it's not purely evil. It's the love of money, the desire that's the root of all kinds of evil. You know, it's not in and of itself. God's, there's lots of psalms about God being quite wealthy, you know, hyperbolically wealthy. Like, it's a joke to him. You know, heaven, they talk about paved with streets of gold which is just a it's like it's not even everything that's worth the most to you is not even worth anything here like we paved the streets with that stuff that's the perspective we're supposed to live with and then the rest of it becomes window dressing and then we know what to do so I wrote a couple things stop living 
in the mindsets of the world. The mindsets of the world tell you, yeah, go after that luxury and self-indulgence thing. That's where true happiness is. And the Bible is saying, no, it's not. Not like you're, it's just saying it isn't. In the same way a science book would say the equal and opposite reaction. The truth is it's not. That won't make you happy. In the mindset of the world that when things aren't working out, take matters into your own hands and make it happen right now. Don't, don't trust God. God's not coming through for you. Neither one of those are Christian. So I'm saying we have to stop living in that sort of way. And I don't mean just talking that way. I mean living that way. Like when we're making financial decisions and when we're deciding on our jobs and when we're deciding on what to do with our families, living as though those things are true. So stop living with the mindset of the world where you always are worried about having enough stuff and living a self-indulgent life and you're not even worried about other people's suffering. Or when you're counting on your own abilities to solve everything. We have differing levels of talents in this room at differing places. Some of the least talented people among us are a gift because they have learned the truth of what it means to truly trust God because they can't fix it all themselves. Some of the most talented people, rich in talents, you understand? They can solve everything, talk their way through everything. These are people that it's hard for them to come into the kingdom because they still think they can do it. The gift from the people that can't do anything or they remind us that that's what we all are. We just don't like to talk about it very much. Truth is it's freeing. We can do nothing good on our own and stop worrying about will God will God come through because he always does he's full of compassion and mercy but we do truly need to make changes and repent and this is where it's kind of interesting we do kind of come full circle because I was reading this and I was like man I mean like because we've been preaching through the Bible and the beauty of preaching through the Bible is the Bible says what the Bible says and it's like you know don't if you don't like this don't look I mean take it up with him you know I didn't write it you know we might disagree about the thing I emphasize, but, you know, we could talk, but seriously, you know. And so, um, but then you run into a verse like this, like right before Thanksgiving, and you're like, come on, man, we want to just like, aren't we thankful? Yeah, you know. But then it dawned on me, I was like, okay, I see that as we enter this season of Thanksgiving, like we were just praying thanks, thankful prayers, that practice, and when I say practice Thanksgiving, this is the kind of advice I would give us to start we don't need to go out and burn all our clothes. I mean, we, you know, slowly ease into that stuff. But the point is, let's get there by practicing Thanksgiving. And it's mostly a mindset shift. It's not about focusing on all the details. Well, I've got 10 pairs of shoes. Is that the sinful level? It's like, what? I don't even, Jesus doesn't say stuff like that because it doesn't, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the heart. And the heart gets formed in the image of the world or the image of God. And he's, so one of the things we can do is as he's transforming our heart, it's practice Thanksgiving, and it's kind of like what we were just doing. It's turning our eyes away from the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life, these kinds of things that run the world, and turning them towards what we're thankful for. And thank, frankly, what a good season to do it. Because every one of us in this room have quite a bit to be thankful for, quite a bit. And some of us have believed the lie that you don't. That's not true. If you at all know who Jesus is, you have more to be thankful for than an entire lifetime of suffering could accumulate in like a balance. 
You see what I'm saying? That's the truth of the matter. But then anything simple that you're thankful for, and I would say practice this. Don't just do it here when we're passing the mic around. Do it in your mind all day. You know, you could be thankful for, like, I'm really thankful for fudge sickles or something, you know. I mean, I don't mean that would be a good thing. Whatever. <laughs> so I don't know why things come to my brain. But the point is practice it. Because I think that if we're thankful and we practice being thankful, if we work that muscle that's in our heart, in the depths of our being, it gets stronger and it gets stronger. And then when those voices come in and go, you know, you really need, it's like, no, I don't actually need that. And then you also realize, like, it's not sinful if I consider getting this. I'm just not controlled by it anymore. It's just a thing. I'm thankful for, and then you have a long list and your muscles are worked out. You're in shape at that point. And I do think that leading into the perseverance section of this whole thing, it when you practice thankfulness or thanksgiving, that fuels patience because you start to notice Jesus' activity in your life throughout. The Holy Spirit's been doing more things than you know and that you're aware of. And he's not going to always just, you know, like, I'm here. You know, sometimes it's, you missed it. And as we're about to go into Advent, you have to put yourself in this mindset of all these people that knew the whole story about what God was doing. And they knew they had this Old Testament scripture. They had it all the way back then. And they knew we messed this thing up, the world, and God is fixing it. And he's going to do it in some pretty dramatic ways. But we don't know exactly how that's going to come. And then all of a sudden, there's a baby born. And that baby had been talked about didn't fit exactly what some people were thinking and a lot of people missed it you look at the story in christmas jesus is born in bethlehem which is so obvious if you looked in the book that when herod says hey guys there's these guys looking for this new king of the jews where's he supposed to be born they're like well in bethlehem duh we all know that <laughs> you know like we know that you know what i mean and then mary and joseph get to bethlehem and there's so many people there they don't even have so he's born in like a barn because they don't even, like, guys, sorry, we're out of rooms, but we can let you have the garage kind of place to. The point is, there was a lot of people staying in, I mean, not a hotel like we think, but imagine it, you know, downtown, the Marriott or something. And they're like, we don't have room anymore, but there's this closet off the parking garage. We can give you that because obviously you need something, you're pregnant and all, you know. And then the king of the world is born there, and there's all these people in these rooms. They don't get the memo. Sometimes you're that close to what God's doing. He's changing the world right around you, and you just don't know. I think part of practicing thankfulness starts to turn your eyes to where you start noticing these things. You start to see what God's doing in your life, your friends' lives, and you start noticing the little things that happen. Because like they use in this imagery here, it's a farmer growing seeds. And even the last thing I'm going to read here is when Jesus was talking about the farmer throwing the seeds of the word and why they grow some places and why they don't. But they don't grow overnight. This isn't like a greenhouse type in, you know, this is just the way, it, you know, the way it used to be or the way it really is out here now. It goes really slow. And for a while, it may not look like anything's happening because that's where we need the patience and the perseverance. And we can do it. The farm, this is Mark 14, Mark, sorry, Mark 4, 14 through 20. I'm going to close by reading this, and then Kayla's going to lead us in a song. And we'll respond how we need to. Some of us need to repent for how much we put faith in our stuff, 
and our money and things like that. Some of us need to repent for doubting God. And all of us need to say, God, we want to experience your compassion and mercy through Jesus Christ. Jesus says this in Mark 4, 14 through 20, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed. Some people are like seed along the path where the world, where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. So it's like, that's the stuff that hit the road. Didn't even get a chance, right? It bounced right off. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown in rocky places, you got a chance now to hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root because the rocks are in the way, they last only a short time and they burn up. When trouble and persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. That's that second category. When you hit stuff you need to persevere through, like Job, you dry up. You don't have any roots. But you looked pretty good for a little while. Still others, like seed among the thorns. This is the first group. They hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word choking it, making it unfruitful. And this is the one we want to be. Others are like seed sown in good soil. Hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So, Father, we know that some of this we're talking about is very simple, and some of it is the mysterious work that you do, like coming as a child um, into our world, world and living among us. And that's the kind of thing we want to interact with. That's the kind of Christian people we want to be. The kind that expect you to do unexpected things. The kind that trust you when we don't understand what's going on. The ones that don't put our faith in our luxury or in our comfort. And we don't put our trust in just our own understanding or our ability to take care of things. We put our trust in you and we put our devotion and our eyes towards you, Lord. And we want to be thankful for the things you do in our lives and around our lives and with those among us. And Lord, we praise you for the goodness that you that you bring and your compassion and your mercy and the salvation that you offer us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we accept that salvation that you give to us as a gift and we are thankful for it. We pray that you would help us to live out these teachings that you've given us in ways that are meaningful, that are unique and creative and are also life-changing. That we can be people who live to set others free just like you did. Not living in some sort of weird faux guilt all the time that for, of things we can't control. Show us the things we can't control and help us to make changes there, Lord. And Lord, we love you and we trust you with our lives fully. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you want to stand and sing this song with Kayla or if you want to come up and pray, feel free. The altars are open and that's how we'll close.